0: Welcome to Angels and Seer Stones. I'm Christine. And I'm Chris. A central tenet of the LDS tradition holds that we existed before we were born, and that we made the decision to come to Earth to get bodies. In this episode, we talk about pre-birth experiences, particularly stories of parents who were visited by the spirits of their future children. And if you stick around to the end, you'll learn about Russell M. Nelson's testimony on these experiences through the incredible visitation his wife, Dansel, had in the years leading up to the birth of their son, Russell M. Nelson, Jr.
1: Latter-day Saints are a people of radical faith. We are a unique body of Bible-believing Christians. For us, the scriptural canon has been opened. The traditional sacraments have expanded. Our beliefs and practices are steeped in universalism, esotericism, and apocalypticism.
0: The Latter-day Saint tradition is a religion in which angels visit everyday people, and sometimes men and women see the divine in stones. In this podcast, we examine lived religion of Latter-day Saints, the stories we tell, and the beliefs we debate.
1: We take seriously the whole gambit of Latter-day Saint experience. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Angels and Seer Stories. So what is a pre-birth experience? These are largely visions, dreams, apparitions associated with an unborn child. I believe they are fairly common among parents. They are very common in LDS folklore. So you get an idea of what we were talking about, let's go ahead and play our first clip. This is from a woman named Nancy. It was collected as part of Sarah Heinz's book, We Lived in Heaven, Spiritual Accounts of Souls Coming to Earth.
2: My first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. To everyone's amazement and to my own, I conceived again only two weeks after the miscarriage. At three months' gestation, I experienced another threatened miscarriage with severe cramping and bleeding. We were certain I was going to lose this baby as well. We were all surprised to find during an ultrasound examination that there was still a tiny heart beating within. Shortly thereafter, I experienced a dream in which a beautiful, smiling baby girl with golden hair and blue eyes appeared to me, radiant and bathed in light. The strange thing about this was that I did not feel like I was dreaming, but felt wide awake and very conscious that I was seeing a living being. I remember feeling a a very real, loving presence that left me happy and reassured. I was certain after this that I was going to have a girl, and I felt the strongest sense, almost as if I had heard a voice, that she wanted to be named Natalie. When Natalie was born, she looked just like the girl I had seen in my dream so many months before. I came to find out later that Natalie means gift. Surely she is a gift from God.
0: So there are a lot of variations in these stories. I think it's important to state that mid-gestation visions are just as common. Sometimes it's a dream. Sometimes it's a voice. Sometimes it's just a feeling.
1: I remember listening to a wonderful friend of ours in Nauvoo tell her story of sensing that her family was incomplete while looking at the the breakfast table, just an awareness that someone was missing.
0: Yeah, that's a great example and a popular motif in PBEs or pre-birth experiences. You know what I find most compelling about these stories is the sense of reassurance that a woman may describe following the events. The assurance that, or reassurance that a high risk pregnancy will give way to a safe delivery, that a mother of multiple children will be able to manage another child in an already taxing home environment, or that an unexpected birth was always a part of God's grand design. And these aren't priesthood blessings, promises tied to the words of another. They're individual revelatory experiences that comfort and empower women as they become visionaries or prophetesses, revealing God's plan for their individual families.
1: In another story, we see how PBEs can be significant even in non-traditional families. In one story, a family finds peace with their decision to adopt. This one is also taken from Sarah Hines' book, A couple unable to conceive decides to adopt one night as the mother sleeps she has a dream in which in which a beautiful baby with big dark eyes says
3: i have been waiting a long time and i have your name on me
1: fast forward a year later and the couple receives a call from the adoption agency confirming that their son has been born but that the birth mother has requested to see him knowing the probability that the adoption might not take place the couple's filled with anxiety however that night as the mother sleeps Her stepfather, who's been dead, visits and reassured her, All is well. And this was on the anniversary of his passing. Sure enough, all went smoothly, and the newborn, who they named Tyler, was adopted. Sometime later, the stepfather returned, this time in a vision to Tyler's maternal aunt.
4: Tyler is a great spirit, and was my good friend in the spirit world. When he found out his birth mother wanted to give him up for adoption, I asked if he would come to our family. Tyler agreed.
0: Yeah, I love this uh, this particular story because it speaks to another common thread in PBEs, which is that multiple generations are involved in the ongoing creation of a family, the living, the deceased, and the pre-mortal.
1: I love that. This, of course, is the major story arc in Saturday's Warrior, the wonderful late 1970s LDS play that some modern Latter-day Saints have decided is a little hokey and maybe a tad embarrassing but regardless, it actually contains wonderful Latter-day Saints story arcs and, uh, and motifs. Despite already having seven children, the Flinders decide to have another, much to the frustration of their eldest son, Jimmy.
3: Mom, I have a question. And I need a straight answer.
1: Okay.
3: Those times you talk saying you feel empty inside like someone's missing. Yes. Does that mean you're going to have another baby? Thought about it? Oh, that's just precisely what this family needs. One more kid.
1: We get to see the family before this life, and we follow young, unborn Emily throughout as she worries that her brother Jimmy won't keep his promise to make sure she is born.
4: Jimmy? Why didn't you keep your promise?
1: Of course, these stories often have an underlying assumption that families are supposed to have a certain number of children in them that someone could be missing
0: The idea of a fully formed premortal family is one reason why a couple might feel uh, moved to have more children. We can't leave anyone behind, right And Douglas Stewart and Lex de'Azevedo uh, didn't come up with this idea, of course
1: right It doesn't start with Saturday's Warrior.
0: That's right. In 1847, we have Brigham Young reportedly having this vision in which he saw the human family perfectly organized in the pre-mortal world, but these family lines had become disorganized in mortality. And then we have John Taylor and his wonderful essay, The Origins and Destiny of Women, and he states that we knew our parents and our husbands or our wives before this life.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the premortal family is one explanation for these stories, but there's another strain of thought that righteous spirits are still deciding which family they will join, and we saw a little bit of that in this adopted child. Um, We see this when Orson Pratt first announced the practice of plural marriage in 1852. He said one reason for polygamy was for spirits to have enough righteous families to be born into. Otherwise, they would have to be born into less righteous homes. This idea is also in a wonderful visionary experience had by Lorona Wilson in the 1880s.
3: When the twins were weaned and had learned to walk, I allowed a feeling to take possession of me. As I had three babies so close together, it was not necessary for me to have another very soon. One night I was awakened by a cry of an infant, but could not hear it after I was awake. But as soon as I would doze off to sleep again, I would hear the cry. It was repeated several mornings in the same manner it touched my mother feelings and caused me to think and wonder if it was right for me to hold the stand i had taken we had never done anything to prevent childbirth more than to live apart so i prayed to my heavenly father for his will to be done and i would try to do the best i could by all the children he saw fit to send us A few months later, I was told in a dream that the child I was to be the mother of had had its choice of six mothers and had chosen me as the one to bring its spirit into the
1: world. I love that idea that a spirit could select their parents, but I guess truly this idea is in both scenarios.
0: Yeah, but this scenario might make more sense to the current generation who is much less comfortable with the idea of soulmates than those of previous generations.
1: Isn't that true? I think that our current generation is very uncomfortable with the idea of a premortal family already formed, particularly when that means father and mother have already had a relationship. And we'll talk about that in a future episode. What's this question about soulmates in the LDS um, folklore stories in the past and now? Pre-birth experiences have been the subject of a handful of scholarly articles, beginning with the 1987 article of Margaret K. Brady, a University of Utah folklore professor, It was called Transformations of Power, Mormon Women's Visionary Narratives. Brady concluded these experiences were often told by women who had made the decision not to have more children and were feeling deeply guilt-ridden. She argued that women told these stories to show off their spirituality. Brady wrote, quote, not only are these stories shared within close family groups, but they are most frequently told in Relief Society meetings as personal testimony during church services and as didactic anecdotes in classes for young adults. The vision experience in some way marks a spiritual rebirth for the woman. It reinforces her sense of her own spirituality, and it gives her a narrative vehicle for displaying that spirituality to others.
0: Yeah, historian artist partial question this claim. Uh, she's an active member all her life, and she says that she'd never heard a first-person account of someone who had had this experience. Mm. She praised Brady's article for its coverage of this spiritual experience, but argued that sharing spiritual experiences at church doesn't really give you additional clout.
1: I find artists' critique pretty convincing. Based on your earlier remarks, how do you see the difference between what you were saying about women being empowered by these visions and what Brady is saying? Or do you agree with Brady.
0: Yeah, I don't think these visions are about accruing power or accruing clout among other Latter-day Saints. I think it's more personal. It's a narrative that tends to be more family-centric. So I agree with artists that these aren't being shared publicly, at least not very often. These stories are about women finding comfort in the difficult decisions they face about beginning or expanding a family. They assist in the transition women make into motherhood or from one child to another. I think they empower women as mothers or soon-to-be mothers begin to see the role they play in God's plan. They're about to do something quite incredible to embody uh, these beings who have purpose in this family and in this life.
1: I like that. You know, there was an LDS graduate student at the University of Missouri-Columbia named Scott Mitchell, who took on Brady's claims in his thesis. Um, And the thing he questioned was her claim that these stories were actually public, right? You could go to a church service and just see someone talking about this. If you happen to go to Relief Society, it was very common to hear someone stand up and just tell this personal experience they had. What he found is that they really only occurred in small women-only spaces.
0: Right. And he, said, he also mentions that men actually avoid sharing these stories altogether because they believe they don't belong to them.
1: This is important because contrary to Brady's claim, supernatural experiences are seldom shared publicly in LDS circles. These are topics for long conversations with close friends and family members. The other question is whether this experience is gendered. Do men have dreams and visions of their future children, too?
0: Okay, so I I do think that um, men have these experiences as well. But I doubt that they do at the same frequency as women. Uh, Brady only talks about unpregnant women seeing their future children and then deciding to have a child. This leaves out a great deal of other experiences that men might also have. For example, a father might see a dream that reveals something to them about the child, um, that their wife is already pregnant with, such as their gender, you know. Uh, but sometimes men do see their future chil- future children akin to the stories that we've heard.
1: You know, I like the story collected by folklorist Bert Wilson, William A. Wilson, who a name you will hear frequently here, the father of Lottery Saint. folklore. I'm going to read the paraphrase from Eric Eliasson's article on pre-birth experience narratives. So this is the story collected. In another instant, a couple agreed to stop talking about having more children, since this caused too much marital tension. Almost immediately, a blue-eyed little girl with blonde pigtails began to visit the wife repeatedly, asking to be born. Worried and deprived of sleep, the wife warily told her reluctant husband about these encounters. He replied, "'So she's been bothering you too, has she?' Yet even in this story, even if the father experienced it too, we learn the details from the mother's perspective And we see that in our final story as well.
0: All right. This is the one you've been waiting for, the story behind the birth of Russell M. Nelson's 10th child.
4: One night in 1957, Dancel awakened me with a very special announcement. She said, During the night, I had a remarkable vision. It was more than just a dream. I saw a little baby boy. He was very special, a handsome child. He had a round face and lots of hair. He looked just like you. I had a wonderful visit with him. I didn't pay a great deal of attention to this announcement at the time, even though our sixth child was on its way. I began to pay more attention to it, as repeatedly over the next few years, she indicated she had received a visit from this same little boy. In fact, it became so much a part of our life that after one of these visions, she would simply say, I saw him again. He's such a sweet and special young boy. Over the years, from that first manifestation, we greeted Emily, Lowry, Rosalie, and Marjorie into our family, each one bringing her own special spirit. Yet Dansel had the firm conviction that our family was not completed. Therefore, in her 46th year, not enjoying the best of health, she willingly and selflessly embarked on her 10th pregnancy. We had a beautiful family of nine daughters. We had been married over 26 years. She knew the statistics were not favorable for a woman who had had many children such as she in her 46th year to have another baby. None of that dissuaded her, for her faith was strong. On January 22nd, 1972, I was in Sun Valley, Idaho, speaking at a meeting of the Idaho Heart Association. I was given a very lovely room in the Sun Valley Lodge, a fire in the fireplace, and all that went with it. All alone in that room, I retired for the evening. In the middle of the night, I was awakened with a very real experience. I cannot remember who gave the message. That is of no importance, but I do remember, surely, as surely as I live, that it was announced to me that this time, Dance's pregnancy was with a son, he who had been appearing to her through the years. Furthermore, it was impressed upon my mind that his name should be Russell Marion Nelson, Jr. The following morning I called Dance a long distance and told her of the experience. She was moved by it, for she knew that with each of the nine children prior to this, the discussion of an alternative name, should it have been a boy, had never included Russell Marion Nelson, Jr. We had a bit of prejudice against having a young man called Junior, but we knew this had been an experience that deserved considerable attention, and so we planned accordingly. I stayed beside Dansel during the recovery period as the anesthetic lightened and ultimately wore off. After she awakened, the nurses brought the baby to her side and nestled the child against her bosom. It was then that she first saw the infant. She looked at that face, a round little fat face, and the abundance of dark hair. Her eyes moistened as she exclaimed, He's the one. He's the one I've seen and known for all these years. I've always known Dansell to be especially close to our Father in Heaven, but the events surrounding the birth of our tenth child and first son Russell Marion Nelson Jr. brought me to a realization that she was entitled to maternal communication beyond that ever deserved by a man. Her revelation was exceeded only by her faith and her compliance and willingness to do what was necessary to give life to this son who was waiting to come. Her sacrifice for him and her willingness to go into the valley of the shadow of death that he might be were well on my mind as i gave him a name and a blessing as mentioned earlier i consulted with president spencer w kimball on the matter of naming the child and he also felt that the name russell marion nelson jr was appropriate isn't
1: that powerful this is from Russell and Nelson's 1979 biography, From Heart to Heart. I suppose it's an autobiography. Both as a Latter-day Saint and as a folklorist who studies Latter-day Saints, I am so grateful to be living during President Nelson's presidency. Here is a man that openly discusses spiritual gifts and experiences in a way that I don't think we've seen since the presidency of Wilford Woodruff. It's a good time to be alive.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Angels and Seerstones. On Thursday's episode, we'll be discussing folklore surrounding Ted Bundy's murder spree in Utah and how some Latter-day Saints were protected by living their religion or by providence. Coming up next week, we are also discussing stories about apostate missionaries and their secret combinations and another on LDS folklore and animals. So please do stay tuned.
1: See you then.